Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. And here is the last of our summer hiatus episodes. This was my conversation with Dr. Cynthia Lum in episode 93. Dr. Lum is from George Mason University's Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy. And besides being an academic who is really into doing what works and figuring out how to measure that, she's a former police officer herself. It was a great conversation. She's a wonderful, engaging person, and I know you'll like this. Enjoy. We often hear about new methods police try to achieve better results against crime. But do the police have any reason to believe that their new approaches will work? Are there new initiatives based on hope or on evidence that they will really help? Evidence-based policing, that's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is recorded at WESA in Pittsburgh. For past episodes, show notes, and more information, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your guide, nerd, geek, and explainer-in-chief of our dysfunctional criminal justice system. Also, still so grateful for that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, how many times have you heard a news story that goes something like this? The police in your city have a new approach to violent crime or retail theft or whatever. They're taking an entirely different and new path, and it will get better results. Now, I've been around long enough to have heard this many times. Sometimes these new approaches work, sometimes they don't, and sometimes they make no difference at all, and sometimes they make things actually worse. Uh, My favorite example of this is a program that I bet a lot of you have probably heard about or maybe even experienced firsthand. It's an anti-drug program from the 80s called D.A.R.E. D.A.R.E., of course, stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. It's an educational program given in schools that began in Los Angeles, like I said, in the 80s, 1983, designed to head off drug abuse by children, a worthy goal, by having police officers visit schools and talk to children about drugs and have law enforcement present this programming In the schools, law enforcement has been presenting D.A.R.E. programming, had D.A.R.E. officers and D.A.R.E. vehicles given out D.A.R.E. swag to kids literally for decades. But here's the problem. Uh, It wasn't clear that D.A.R.E. did anything to reduce drug abuse. And some people have even had the nerve to suggest that perhaps kids who had had D.A.R.E. programming in their schools might actually be more likely to use some substances, particularly alcohol and tobacco. This audio from a video by Vice News puts D.A.R.E. into historical perspective. Take a listen. A 2001 Surgeon General report on D.A.R.E. said the program, quote, consistently showed little or no deterrent effect on substance use. But the program wasn't completely ineffective. A number of studies found that D.A.R.E. programs could produce a boomerang effect, resulting in increased teen drug use. Yeah, it doesn't stop, and maybe it even encourages certain kinds of drug use. So if that's the evidence about D.A.R.E., no one would want the program in schools or anywhere, really, except perhaps 
for this man. This audio is from that same Vice report. There was became fundamental to our success by educating children to the dangers of drug use. I firmly believe that your work saved lives. Yes, that's our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, waxing nostalgic for the days of great success in the war on drugs through the D.A.R.E. program, despite all the evidence to the contrary. So D.A.R.E. seems to be a real-world example of a law enforcement policy or program carried out without, maybe even in spite of, evidence of success. But what if we looked for evidence of success, of efficacy, and then decided whether the new tactic or strategy or program was worth it? What if police policy and police initiatives were evidence-based? Could we do that? Does anyone do that now? The answer is yes, we can do that, and it is being done now in some places. Our guest today will tell us how and give us some idea about the good it can do when we base our public policy on real facts, particularly in this realm of criminal justice. Dr. Cynthia Lum is professor of criminology, law, and society at George Mason University, where she serves as the director of the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy. The Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy looks for ways to make scientific research a key component in decisions about crime and justice policies using rigorous studies conducted through collaborations between researchers and practitioners on the ground. A former police officer herself, Dr. Lum, focuses her research on policing and security and evidence-based crime policy. She's done many evaluations of policing interventions and policing technology and with her colleagues has created new tools to help police incorporate research into their strategic and tactical decision-making. She sits on committees, boards, and advisory groups for law enforcement at the very highest levels all over the country. Her new book with Christopher Coper is Evidence-Based Policing, Translating Research into Practice, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. We're going to put a link to it up on our website. Dr. Cynthia Lum, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, great. Uh, if you don't mind, let's start with a question or two about your own background. Where and when were you a police officer? How long did you serve? What sort of duty assignments did you have? Well, I was a police officer in Baltimore City, Maryland. Uh, I started out as a patrol officer in the Eastern District, for those of the folks uh, listening who are familiar with Baltimore City. And uh, then I became a detective in the Criminal Investigations Division, um, specializing in both sexual and major physical child abuse. Wow. How long were you with the Baltimore City Police Department? Uh, about five years, from 1997 to about 2003. And those were some tough years in Baltimore. I mean, that's sort of the world you see reflected in the, the HBO show The Wire, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. Some, sometimes we would run into... Uh, the folks, uh, the actors and the producers making The Wire on the street. So it was a very interesting time. Wow. So ultimately, uh, you decided to make another choice. You wanted a different path. Uh, did you have some particular goal in mind when you left law enforcement? I think um, when I became a professor, uh, 
uh, I actually started off at Northeastern University for a couple of years as an assistant professor and then moved over to George Mason around 2005. And uh, I think my goals were really just to learn as much about the criminal justice system as possible and also to think about how reform could be effectuated with research. Okay, reform with research. I like the way you put that. That leads us right to this idea of evidence-based crime policy. Uh, Give us a a definition that uh, we'll all understand and can use as we try to understand this important new area. Sure, sure. There, I think there are many variations of this definition but uh, and how it's defined, but I view evidence-based crime policy as really an approach to policing, which is uh, my area of expertise, or crime prevention policy that suggests that scientific research and analysis should at least have a seat at the table in decision-making. Uh, you know, of course, research can't um, make all uh, can't be responsible for all the decisions that occur in a police agency or or in the courts, but it's this idea that it should at least be part of that decision making process. Um, and research and evaluation and analysis can all play an important role in understanding uh, whether the things that we're doing in criminal justice are, in fact, leading to the outcomes we seek. So, for example, like your D.A.R.E. example uh, that you gave at the beginning of the segment, you know, uh, does this uh, very, very expensive program actually lead to outcomes that the program is trying to achieve, which is the reduction of future drug use uh, by young people? And so that's really what evidence-based policing is about. It's about bringing research into the criminal justice system to see how it can inform decision-making better. Um, Just as other examples, um, for example, does putting more officers in schools improve school safety? Right, something we're all talking about a lot now. Exactly, exactly. Does does changing the layout or the management of prisons help to reduce assaults in prison? Does the quick response by the police help to increase the chance that I might arrest the suspect um, that committed a crime? You know, does a, it can be a management question. Does like an early intervention programs for um, officers, you know, early response systems help to identify officers that might be at higher risk for use of force? So you can think of research and science as being... Um, an important part of all types of decisions in criminal justice, from from strategic and tactical uh, decisions to things involving management and internal functions of uh, criminal justice agencies. So I think also it's helpful to define evidence-based crime policy um, against a backdrop of what it what we're trying to move away from. Yeah, and this and was that, really the thrust of my question. It's, you, you, sure. you, made it, you said at one point, a, seeking a seat at the table. I gather it hasn't always been so. So how did it used to work? Oh, I, I think it's still, um, many decisions in criminal justice still rely on what we did yesterday. Uh, traditions, also hunches, like our feelings about what might work best. Um, And when I say we, I'm saying like as a police officer or as a judge or as a prosecutor, um, even groupthink where, you know, a group of police leaders might come together and decide what they think might be the best course of action. Um, Even things like past experiences 
these are the things that often guide tactic and, tactics and strategies on how to prevent uh-huh. crime or to improve the criminal justice system. Right, and um, those aren't necessarily right, even if we think they are, even if we strongly believe it. Absolutely. Uh, this, and it's not just the criminal justice system. I think about, for example, when I have a cold and I go to the doctors and I ask them for an antibiotic for my cold mm-hmm. because I think that's going to make me feel better. And, of course, my doctor, she knows who I am, and she says, look, you know that this is not evidence-based. I'm not going to give you <laughs> an antibiotic for your cold. Uh, not only that, but it can be harmful, um, not only to yourself, but to uh, the broader society in terms of how antibiotics are used. Right. So I think it's a challenge because we often feel something may be correct or we have certain beliefs about what might be the right thing to do. Um, and yet they may not be correct. They might fly in the face of what is, in fact, uh, uh, something that is developed by science or research, something that um, is based on empirical knowledge. And, you know, you, you, your example of going to your doctor uh, 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 pokes me and says, I, I, I sort of remember that medicine has its own evidence-based sort of uh, uh, practices and has had that for a while. Am I am I remembering that right? You're correct. Um, and and there was a time, and probably still is, where there's also clinical knowledge, uh, just like we have patrol officer knowledge, right? There's clinical knowledge That's based the comparison. on experience yeah. that some doctors still use to make decisions um, because in their gut they somehow feel like it's the right thing to do. Or they have a patient like me who says, I really need antibiotics. I'm going to yield to the patient's wishes. Yeah. Right. So oftentimes there's other pressures and other belief systems that can override that scientific belief system, that belief that research or systematic knowledge um, is important. So you've talked about how this has to be a collaboration between researchers and people in the field. Uh, How do you make that happen? Is it hard to bring that about or to sell them on it? You know, because my own work with police departments is not nearly as deep as yours, but I know that they're not real, you know, real wild often about having outsiders come in. How do you, how have you overcome that? Or maybe I'm saying too much. Maybe it doesn't take anything to overcome it. Maybe they're eager for it. Um, I I think... I think we have to think of police agencies just like we would think of ourselves or other organizations. Um, relationships matter. You know, building trust with police agencies, with leaders in police agencies, with people on the ground in police agencies is really an important factor in successful collaborations, I think. Um, but you're correct. It, it's uh, it's um, a difficult Thing to just go into a police agency and say, "Hey, I would like to evaluate your program." Sure, um, who's going like to love that? Analyze some of your data, mm-hmm. right? Um, and because, uh, like anything else, there probably have been bad stories of academics that go into police agencies um, that wreak havoc, or that uh, maybe that they don't. They just find out something, and it doesn't make the agency look good. Um, so I think striking a careful balance with, um, you know, being objective, making sure that you share with the police agency your findings, even if um, they're not the greatest findings for the police agency, 
but also building that trust over time, working with them over time, uh, it really helps with developing collaborations. Would I be guessing right if I thought that perhaps you having been a police officer, that that would give them some level of comfort? Uh, You know, I'm not sure if that's the case or not. I think this is a very different kind of world uh, than when I was in patrol or when I was a detective. Um, And I'm also working with sometimes different types of people. Uh, I was never a police chief, for example, or held a very, I did not hold a very high command position. And you would be dealing with those people, wouldn't you? Oftentimes that's who we start with. And Mm -hmm. so um, I don't know if my past experience helps or perhaps even hurts, Mm -hmm. but what I do try to rely on more is um, being transparent, telling police agencies exactly what we're looking for, trying to also incorporate some of their needs and interests in our program or our project or evaluation so that they get something out of it too. Um, And so I find that doing some of those things really helps to build those relationships. Um, All about relationships. So is it, isn't it? Isn't life like that, it, right? It always is. It always is. Yeah. You know, I, I tell my students that, and I'm sure you do the same thing, because when you come into a profession, you want to think that it's your smarts and your your talents and it's going to carry you through. And, of course, those have a lot to do with, with how things go and your, your, your willingness to work hard, but it's always about the people. And it's about who you have relationships with and whether you trust each other. Uh, That's right. And I I think that's a great way to describe evidence-based crime policy also because ultimately it's about people who are trying to affect change. Um, And change is always scary. It's always difficult. It's hard. Uh, You know, you're turning over rocks and you don't know what's underneath those rocks. And then you find out something and you have to make adjustments because of that. So... I think change is difficult, so relationships are important. Um, And science on its face, even though you and I as scientists, uh, as professors, we value science a great deal, um, on its face it's not often enough to convince somebody that they should change their behavior. Going back to the antibiotic issue, Mm -hmm. that's a great example, right? Yeah. Um, Or the D.A.R.E issue. We still have DARE to this day. It's incredibly expensive. Um, It it certainly costs a great deal of money. Um, And yet, you know, the science has pretty much shown that DARE does not uh, contribute to the reduction of juvenile drug use. Right, which is its whole point. So when did the first evidence-based policing programs or evaluations or efforts, what did they involve? Uh, How did it go uh, what were those first few efforts? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, some of the big evaluations of policing, the most uh, well-known ones, were took place in the 1980s and early 1990s. These were the experiments that were conducted by folks like Larry Sherman um, and David Weisberg. Right, two of the um, leaders in criminology. That's right. These were uh, major policing scholars and are uh, policing scholars who did some of the first experimental evaluations in police agencies on things like police response to domestic violence or uh, hotspots policing um, uh, or trying to tackle repeat offenders uh, in, uh, in policing. 
And so oftentimes we think about those folks in, in our field as being pioneers with regards to evaluation. However, you know, at that, around that same time, you have a lot of things happening uh, in the criminal justice policy field that I think really pushed evidence-based crime policy forward. Um, uh, for example, the, there was a famous report called the Martinson Report um, that was conducted in the 70s where they did this review of criminal justice programs. And even, even though this was not what the report said, people interpreted the report as saying, you know, look, very little in criminal justice works. And some of that really spurred on um, a generation of criminologists and scientists and sociologists who were committed to then studying what could possibly work um, right. in criminal justice. You also had in the early 90s, uh, something that I was a part of as a graduate student, a report called the Mer University of Maryland Report to Congress on what works and what doesn't in crime prevention. And that did this large review of different types of evaluations um, of criminal justice interventions, DARE being one of them, but also a lot of policing interventions and corrections interventions. Um, and that really sh uh, brought, a, um, brought a light onto this idea that science could be a very important part of criminal justice decision-making, that there were evaluations that could tell us or give us hints at what could work in criminal justice in terms of reducing recidivism or crime prevention or, or what have you. And then from that grew um, just a large group of scholars that were part of organizations like the Campbell Collaboration, for example. What was the Campbell Collaboration? Campbell Collaboration is similar to the Cochrane Collaboration in medicine in which they are conducting something called systematic reviews, which means they're collecting all the evidence on a particular program like DARE or like neighborhood policing or, or directed patrol policing or, um, or probation, something like this. And they're trying to make sense of a large amount of research, taking into account the rigor of those individual research pieces to then make a statement to the community about whether or not those interventions are effective. So they're kind of systematic reviews of research. And the purpose of this is, a, is for translation and digestion of the science. This is really the second part of evidence-based crime policy that I wanted to talk about, which is that evidence-based crime policy is not just about generating good research and finding out what works or what doesn't. It's also about developing the processes, the tools, the, the information that criminal justice practitioners need to then, in turn, use that information in their practice. Um, and that, that is, a, is a hurdle in and of itself. Right. In it's an extra step for sure. It. Yeah. yeah. So sure. to translate it for use in the field – that if you yeah. ignore that, you get nothing out of it except, I don't know, research papers, which are good and significant. But if you want to impact the field, you've got to show officers, here's what this means to you, and this is how you use it. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll add one more item that will make it even – that makes it even a little more challenging, David. And that yes. is, is that you not only have to translate it, 
but then you have to help agencies, police agencies, for example, build a receptivity towards that information. So you can translate it, but somebody needs to be receptive to it. And, and building receptivity is not just about convincing and, and winning hearts and minds, right. for example. Sure, that would be it's good. More, mm-hmm. It's more technical than that. Um, receptivity has a lot to do with what they're being trained on, the infrastructure of their systems, like their accountability systems, their, tra- their training, their reward systems. All of these things help to institutionalize um, a receptivity towards research that is needed in order for you to use it. So it's a little, evidence-based crime policy is more involved than just generating the research on our end. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break here. We're on criminal injustice with Dr. Cynthia Lum of George Mason University, and we're talking about evidence-based policing. We'll be right back. Stay here. David Harris with you here on Criminal Injustice, and our guest is Dr. Cynthia Lum of George Mason University. She is the director of the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy, and we were talking about just what goes into evidence-based policing and evidence-based crime policy. Uh, let's, let's talk now about concrete examples. Give us a couple of examples of police policy or programs that we'd all sort of know but we'd have no idea that they sort of came from this background of being evidence-based. I think first, I guess, of hotspots. Was that an evidence-based innovation? I think hotspots could be considered as evidence-based. Um, your your question stumps me a bit because uh, I don't think there's too many practices today that I would say we take for granted that come from an evidence-based approach. So maybe my question is what's off here. Yeah, so, so um, well, if you think of it this way, um, a great deal of uh, criminal justice practice probably would not fall under the realm of evidence-based. And so I'm su- often surprised when I see an agency regularly implementing uh, directed patrol or hotspots approaches or problem solving, for example, these are all three things that are that are evidence based, um, and that they're doing it on a regular basis. Most agencies might do an ad hoc program um, every so often uh, at certain places where they direct patrol to those places or to those hotspots, but it isn't necessarily systematically built in to their everyday patrol, so much so that I might take it for granted. I see. Um, So I think things that I do see that police agencies are trying to implement are uh, that are evidence-based are things like place-focused policing, where they're concentrating and targeting their efforts on concentrations of crime, uh, places that have opportunity structures that contribute to crime happening over and over and over again at those places. Um, Some agencies do uh, engage in problem solving where they're trying to analyze 
the underlying issues related to a repetitive problem that keeps happening, like, like multiple burglaries that keep happening in a neighborhood, and they're trying to figure out why that might be the case, and then get at the underlying problem. It's a longer-term strategic prevention effort. Right. The, this is the Herman Goldstein idea, isn't it? Exactly, yes. It's, it's like a longer-term effort instead of trying to hope that you might find the person that committed the burglary. Ultimately, we're trying to avoid the crime in the first place, right? We're trying to avoid arrest. We're trying to avoid the crime by preventing it in the first place. And that is a very radical notion, actually, in policing, at least, um, because in policing, arrest is very much a central part of the way officers view their function, how they are rewarded. Um, and so that is really the normal day-to-day -day business that goes on, you know, trying to find people that have com already committed a crime, when in fact the evidence base for policing really points to a number of proactive and preventative measures to try to avoid having to make that arrest in the first place by, by averting the crime. So in many ways, the receptivity for an evidence-based approach um, is challenged by the core beliefs about what the function of the criminal justice system is. Um, and that is really another challenge to bringing science and research into the criminal justice process. Uh, you know, it often flies in the face of what we're used to doing as police officers or as prosecutors. So with it flying in the face, let me ask you about a, a very well-known set of, pro of programs sure. out of New York in the 1990s, the broken windows approach where you mm -hmm. look for the small stuff in order to cut off the big stuff, uh, so often associated with uh, Mayor Giuliani and William Bratton and its, uh, its companion, the Compstead approach. Were, and, and this program was all about analyzing almost real-time data so that police officers could not just react to things that happened weeks ago, but they'd be held accountable for what was happening right now and for taking substantive action. Were these programs ever evaluated with the evidence-based policing point of view? And if so, what did you find? Yeah. So... With Comstat and with the New York policies, especially in the 1990s, the answer to your question is very involved. Um, so first, let me talk about broken windows. Um, broken windows, as it was first envisioned by uh, Wilson and Kelling um, in their famous Atlantic article and, and how they would discuss it today or how Kelling would talk about it today, is... Uh, an approach to policing that not necessary that doesn't just focus on um, increasing the misdemeanor arrests of individuals um, committing small disorders. They would probably say that their envisioning of it was uh, focused on communities addressing disorder problems and trying to reduce disorder in a variety of different ways, including things that were not arrest-based, community policing, problem solving, et cetera. The challenge with that is that broken windows policing has turned into and has been interpreted by many agencies as a zero-tolerance misdemeanor arrest approach 
to policing. Let me ask you, do you find that this approach is more uh, accepted in other countries than in the United States or is it a pretty is it pretty much the same tough road wherever you go? Because I've know you I know you've done research and work overseas. Yes, yes. I I would say um similar challenges. I've seen similar challenges in England, in Scotland, and in Australia. And these are the three places that um I've probably know the best in terms of their work in this area. Uh, however, in some of these places, the receptivity to science, I think, is greater. Um, and part of that has to do with the fact that U.S. policing is very decentralized. Um, it's not like in England or Scotland or some parts of Australia where there's a more central um, command and control and accountability systems for the police. Right, right, because they only have a, f- a small number of police departments compared to our very, very many of them. That's right. And, e- well, even our, even in the U.S., many, most of our police agencies are less than 50 officers. They're very, very small. Um, but we also have a very decentralized approach to policing where specific towns and counties and jurisdictions have their own police agencies. Um, and we also have overlapping police agencies that overlap in different jurisdictions. We have federal agencies and state agencies. If the systems in the agencies, and by systems I mean things like training systems, deployment systems like patrol and investigations, supervisory and managerial systems, accountability systems, technology in the agency, leadership systems, if these things aren't re-engineered to accommodate these new strategies that we know are evidence-based, right, then the police can't fulfill the evidence-based approach because even if they want to, even if they have the knowledge, even if they are receptive to it, the systems in the agency are so strong, the culture in the agency is so strong as well, that it's going to thwart their efforts or their their thought process to support an evidence-based approach. So, So just as an example, we can't ask the police to be proactive uh, unless we have a way to record that proactivity. Why do we want to record it? Because we want to reward them when they're doing something that's evidence-based. Right. If you want a response, you better reward. That's right. Why do we? Or on the flip side of the coin, we want to hold folks accountable to something, right? And so without just that simple recording of the proactivity, we can't then achieve the evidence-based approach. And and without getting into too much technical issues, many police agencies don't have the ability to record proactivity. They have the ability to record reactivity. And that's their computer-aided dispatch systems. That's the, ni- you know, when you call 911, it gets recorded. Um, so sure. they have the ability to do that. But they don't necessarily have the same systems in place to record things that we now know are evidence-based. And that's like one small example of one one single system in the police. So you can imagine dozens of systems in the police that need to be recalibrated in order to adjust for this notion of evidence-based approach to then help with the receptivity, right? And I'll throw in a final wish uh, for my wish list. Please do. 
and that is is that I think all of us, but especially as police, I wish I had done this when I was a police officer, but I wish we uh, police would also reconsider and have deeper philosophical discourses about what their role and their function is in an advanced democratic society. Oh my gosh, nothing more important. It, it's so important, but you know, like all of us, and, it, and I'll include professors in this, we don't often have, although probably more so than police, but we don't often sit down and discuss what's the role of education in our society, sure. what's the role of, of college. We're just we doing just the job. About, mm-hmm. Yeah, we just kind of go about our day and we teach and we research and, and we get caught up in those things. But everything matters. Things matter with regards to how we view our function and then if we would be open to rethinking that function if we were being asked to change to something else. And oftentimes evidence-based crime policy is asking the police, the courts, the uh, corrections, judges to rethink how they're doing their jobs. And in order for them to do that, they really have to think about, you know, what is our what is my function? If I view my function as a police officer to arrest and to react to crime, then I'm going to have a harder time adjusting to evidence-based approaches to policing. Um, but if I, if I am open to the idea that my job is also to prevent crime or to deter crime or to improve my relationship with the community, or to increase the legitimacy of the institution of police in democratic society. That switches my mental gear to other types of outcomes. Um, And so, you know, evidence-based crime policy is very much about connecting actions to outcomes. Um, And if the outcomes that you seek are arrest and reaction, then I'm going to connect actions to those things. And we're going to be arresting all day and all night. And we won't be preventing crime. Um, th- this is this is one part of evidence-based crime policy that is somewhat ideological. Although I I believe in this, in that I think one of the purposes of a criminal justice system in an advanced modern democracy is to create safety through prevention. Um, now, some people may disagree with me on mm-hmm. that, and if they disagree with me, then the evidence that I'm talking about may not apply to them. Uh, but in my view, police really in a democracy have two responsibilities. One, and they're equally important, one is the prevention of crime, the deterrence, and that creates safety. And the second is the legitimacy um, that it has with people. So it really needs to know how people are responding to what they're doing. Um, and that's equally important, how they feel or how they are being treated when officers are doing what they're doing. Um, and so building evidence around those two goals are really important in my view. But if you don't believe those are the two goals... Then you're going to have a different view, yes. Exactly. Then then you might not buy into all the evidence that's been generated about those two outcomes. Dr. Cynthia Lum, she's a professor of criminology and director of the Center for Evidence-Based Crime Policy at George Mason University. Thanks so much for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Sure, it's my pleasure.
And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly from the Legal Profession blog, the Louisiana Record, and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Felix Anthony Andy DeGene of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In August of 2018, lawyer DeGene received a suspension from practice for a year and a day because of a misdemeanor conviction for assault. That's right. Convicted of a crime, you can suffer a suspension or even permanent disbarment. So, what gives with the assault conviction? Well, it seems that the prosecution charged lawyer DeGene with assault for having, quote, chest bumped another man. An assault or battery, depending on your state's law, would cover exactly this kind of conduct, an unconsented harmful touching. A judge who heard the assault case in a bench trial did not buy lawyer Jajin's defense that he, quote, never touched the guy. And the other guy had, in fact, assaulted him. The judge found him guilty as charged and gave lawyer DeGene a suspended sentence. Just for the sake of curiosity, let's drill down one more level and ask, who was this other guy assaulted by lawyer DeGene? Well, his name was Bradley Burgett, and he just happens to be the district attorney of the 7th Judicial District of Louisiana. Yes, DeGene assaulted the district attorney. Now, there's a case that's not likely to be dropped. Just saying. So, you ask, where exactly did lawyer DeGene assault the district attorney? Why, in a judge's chambers, of course, as DeGene and the DA and some other folks were leaving after a conference with the judge. Perfect. If you had to pick a top place with some credible witnesses present to see you behave badly, number one might be a convent full of nuns, but a close number two, a judge's office. After his conviction, the disciplinary action was a foregone conclusion. The rules of ethics prohibit committing crimes, even in Louisiana, and so the disciplinary authorities just had to file the paperwork and, at the hearing, introduce lawyer DeGene's conviction. Easy peasy. But according to lawyer DeGene, the whole thing was so unfair— Quote, this one person, this one judge determined my fate, he told the media. Well, yeah, that's how it works, lawyer DeGene. And the punishment was far too severe, he said. DeGene had argued that a public reprimand would be sufficient, but the disciplinary authorities disagreed. DeGene, quote, intentionally violated duties to the public, the legal system, and the profession by engaging in criminal conduct, they said. What's more, he refused to acknowledge any wrongdoing. Oh, and then there's this. Lawyer DeGene had a prior history with bar discipline. Quote, relating to anger issues. Yeah, I bet. He was placed on probation by the bar in 2006 for anger control issues. And he was reprimanded in 2013 for, quote, threatening physical violence against opposing parties during a meeting in his office. Close quote. 
Well, in a year, Lawyer DeGene will be back. And what should we expect then, Louisiana disciplinary authorities? How about you, Louisiana Supreme Court? Do you think this is all going to go well for other clients, for opposing parties, for opposing lawyers? Well, I'm sure it will. You know what they say down there. Let the good times roll. And sometimes, I guess, the rest of us will just have to roll with the punches. That's lawyers behaving badly. And that does it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already. And share us all over social media. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Why don't you call it in? Ask Dave at 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact information, but we won't share that. Again, that number is 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Megan Harris and Josh Rollerson. Interviews are recorded at the studios of WESA in Pittsburgh. For more information, links, and past episodes, visit criminalinjusticepodcast.com, where you can submit your questions and comments, or call 412-407-3389 with your question for David Harris. That's 412-407-3389, or online, criminalinjusticepodcast.com. When the police kill an unarmed black man, we know the family and community suffer. But what about other people, particularly black Americans, beyond those closest to the victim? What's the impact on them? The spillover effect of police killings and other violence on black Americans. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find us on Apple Podcast, your own favorite podcast source, or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.